You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, church family, uh, good evening. My name is Jonathan Woodleaf. have the privilege of being one of the pastors on staff, get to help uh, lead our Department of Mission and Mobilization. And it's just a privilege to be with you. Come on, all right. My mom and my wife are excited about that, a couple others of you. Um, and just love, love. I, I just gotta say before we jump in tonight, like, men just moved, just moved by your faith, moved by your love for Jesus. I love you, and it's an honor to open up God's word. Just believe, as always, that his word under his spirit are enough for his people, and so I'm expectant and excited. And like Shay said, we're in, the, in a series in the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Jonah is between uh, Obadiah and Micah. Probably didn't help you out, but it's in your Old Testament. So you probably need your table of contents. You can go ahead and turn there and just begin to navigate and find Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one. So get there, pull out your device or your Bible, and um, we're gonna start in verse four, like Shay said. Um, so two weeks ago, the night of the tornado, uh, Shay ended at verse three, and we talked about the fact that Jonah had been called by God to go to Nineveh. And Jonah didn't like that a lot. Uh, We talked about the brutality of the Ninevites, that they were this ruthless people, this wicked people. Not only did they, they kill their enemies in awful ways, but they put it, they put it on display. Like they wanted to see their evil. They wanted people to see their evil. And there are these people that, that Jonah is either like, man, I don't want to go there because I'm going to be next or God, I know you're so gracious. And we hear this heart more later in the book. I know you're going to forgive them. I don't want to be a part of that. And Jonah runs. And we talked about the fact that, that Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was 500 miles by land. And Jonah instead got on the sea and, and started going 1,500 miles the opposite direction, just running from the presence of the Lord. And we've got a lot of work to do today. We're going to look at chapters one and two. Um, it's been said chapter, chapter one's kind of like Jonah running from God. Chapter two is Jonah running right into God. Chapter, chapter one is God's grace to chase us in our running. And chapter two is God's grace to, to answer and rescue us in our returning. It's a beautiful text. And we're just going to start moving through it together here. So I think you're there now. Um, verse four, uh, Shay mentioned it. It just jumps right in and says, in light of Jonah making his move, no thank you, God, running from the presence of God, mentioned twice in those first three verses. But Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the the ship threatened to break up like a bad relationship or something like that. So this this storm is going crazy. What a bad dad joke. I'm sorry, I just had to. But um, um, this storm is going crazy and this wind is being hurled. There's a, there's a directness, there's an intentionality with this word, world, uh, word hurled that the Lord had intentionality here and he's coming after Jonah, that Jonah has made his move and now God has made his. And we just need to make a couple points about, about storms. We, we see a storm here. And we see the hand of God in the storm. There are actually at least seven direct references in this first chapter just to the storm out there. Um, the sea raging more and more, the sea eventually quieting down, the, the sea that they're afraid of, just over and over again, seven direct times to this storm that's out there. And we see the hand of God in it. But we, we need to say this, just pastorally, I'd be remiss to not say this, that, that it's a gross oversimplification to say that if bad things are happening in your life, it's connected to your sin. I just want you to hear that today. 
That for those of you that are in Christ, that, 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 you're, that, that the suffering that you're walking through is not punitive, that God's not trying to pay you back, and, and that every uh, sin in your life and every storm out there, there's not always this direct connection of, well, there's a, there's a whirlwind out here, and like, what have I done to cause that? That's not, that's not what we're doing tonight. We're not casting lots and trying to figure out, like, which one of you was it? Come on up here. Like, we're going to bring you front. Like, that's not, that's not what we're doing tonight. But, but it is worth saying this. It is worth saying that the scriptures don't say that every brokenness in life is a result of sin. But the scriptures do say that every sin will indeed bring you into more brokenness. There's this cumulative effect to our sin that, that as we walk into sin, it just has shrapnel and brokenness that continues to spin and spin and spin right there with us. And there's, there's a connection that way that, that not every brokenness in our life is a result of some sin that we did personally. But for sure, every sin will indeed spiral us into more and more brokenness. So we have this storm that the Lord hurls, this sovereign God that is chasing Jonah down as Jonah runs from the presence of God. And then look at five and six. We've got this this reaction from the sailors in the midst of this storm. And so this is the first of, of many contrasts. And, and it just says, and the, then the mariners and the sailors, they were afraid and each cried out to his God and they, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will have a thought to us that we may not perish. So this is the first of many contrasts you're going to see between these pagan sailors that don't believe in the one true God that just are call out to other little G gods, and then Jonah. And it's almost like Jonah is in such a slumber in the midst of his running from God. He, he, he's just sleeping in the midst of everyone else's brokenness. He's apathetic. He's indifferent. He's doing his own thing. And the captain's like, what are you doing? Like the rest of us are in this brokenness and you don't even seem to care. Get up, at least pray to a God, do something. In fact, we're going to see that these sailors, these pagan sailors actually get to praying before Jonah does. These pagan sailors actually start taking action and seem to have courage more than Jonah does. And it puts this perplexing tension in our hearts and minds, like what in the world is that? And I mean, we, don't, we not only see the sovereign grace of God that chases Jonah down, but we just see the common grace of God. God's common grace is just this idea, James 1, that He's the giver of every good and perfect gift, that he bestows blessings on all of humanity, that he gives wisdom and he gives beauty and goodness um, to all of humanity. And so you can have a, a Jonah that might be a believer, at least verbally, to the Lord, but he's running from God in sin. And then you can have some non-believers that are walking the common grace that God has given him. They're just putting Jonah to shame. They look more like Christians than Jonah does in this text. And then we keep reading verse seven, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. This, this idea of what they would do in that day to, to figure out a decision or a point that we may know on whose account this evil had come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse eight, and they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what, they're just firing the questions at him of what people are you Verse nine, and Jonah says to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's like, what? 
Like, is that, is that possible, Jonah? Um, Jonah just seems so confident. This, like, I fear God. Like, he made the heaven, he made the sea, and just the, the, the insanity of Jonah's sin comes, comes front and center here. This man who would not only run from God, but run and get on a boat in the middle of the sea from the God of heaven and earth, and the sailors get it. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They're freaked out and said to him, what is this that you have done? For they knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they feel more scared about his running than, than Jonah does. They feel more perplexed about it than Jonah does. Once again, just another contrast. And they said to him, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Some versions just say it just raged more and more. And he said to them, pick me up, and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest, this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men, they just keep trying to go. They're like, we're not going to throw you in yet. We're not doing that yet. So they, they row hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It raged more and more against them. Before we kind of finish out this little chapter, like you've got this picture here, not only of, of God chasing Jonah down and his, his sovereign grace, not only of common grace of just a God who bestows gifts on everyone, but you've got this picture of just the insanity and the carnage and costliness of sin. That, that, that Jonah, there's an intentionality to his sin. There's an insanity to his sin of like, really? Like even these guys that don't believe in God are like, what are you doing? Like, we're freaked out by it. Like you need to stop, <laughs> you know? Like he's getting rebuked by people that don't even believe what he believes. And, and then there's this carnage around it. Like these sailors have thrown part of their livelihood into the ocean to help Jonah. It's been said before that you can't, you can't run from God in a vacuum. We think we can, we think it's private. We think it's only personal. It's been said you can't, but there's carnage. It's been said before that, that there's this cumulative effect, there's this costliness to your sin. There's even some commentators when it says that Jonah paid the fare, think it's actually talking about that he paid for the whole ship, that there was, there was a costliness for him. Financially, there was a costliness for him. Spiritually, and there was a costliness for everyone around him, that it, it couldn't be done in isolation. And it's sobering. And we're in the midst of the, this narrative full of irony and, and some insanity and a little bit of hilarity. And, and then verse 14, therefore, come on, the pagan sailors about to hold a prayer service in the middle of the boat. They called out to the Lord, to Yahweh, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're touching on God's sovereignty. They're calling out to God by name. They're praying before Jonah prays. And they're even coming like one step short of the gospel of saying, don't let, like, like, don't let us perish because of this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. And so verse 15, they picked up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And it's one thing to worship God like in the middle of the storm, right? It's like one thing to worship God before the storm ends, but the storm's over. And look at these men, storm's gone. Verse 16, then the men, they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Like they, they just get saved. Like God just changes their life upside down in the middle of the storm, after the storm. And then verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so we cue the fish that gets so much limelight in the story, has like less than two verses, not about the fish, not about the wind, 
It's about a gracious God that chases and saves and answers and rescues. But we cue the fish here, and it's ironic because even the fish will do what Jonah's not able to do. He'll hear the voice of the Lord, and the fish will obey. Let me tell you where we're going in the second section. If if the first section is the grace of God, that he's the hound of heaven, as Spurgeon called him, that he chases us in the midst of our running. If it's God's grace to chase us in our running, the second section here is God's grace to answer us and rescue us in our returning. And this section, like, man, for someone like me that's a little ADD and all over the place, like, it doesn't help that it's not chronological at all. So if you like that, in your study, if you want like this, then this, it's not happening for you in this text. Let me give you three words that'll help you frame it. We're gonna look at the depths. We're gonna look at the deliverance. We're gonna look at the development of Jonah with God's grace here in this text. We're gonna look at the depths, the deliverance, and the development. And the crazy thing is, like, if you were to look at a schematic for this prayer, like, it's something along the lines of, uh, like, chronologically, verse one and two, then seven B, then five, then four, then three, then six B, then seven A, then six A, then nine, and it'll just, like, mess you up. But isn't it true that that's how our prayers look sometimes at the depths? Isn't that true? Like, that's what our crying out to God looks like when, like, everything has fallen through. That, like, there's a storm out there, but God is bringing to attention front and center for Jonah that, Jonah, there's not just a storm out there. There's a storm in here, and, and I'm loving enough to confront the storm in here for you, Jonah. And God's doing that. So first, the depths. It just says that, that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Our whole narrative has been going down for Jonah, down, 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 and down. Look back at uh, 1-3. Uh, Jonah went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Look at verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he lay down fast asleep. And we've just read in verse 17 that he has gotten hurled into the sea, and he's gone down into the belly of the fish. And so the narrative has Jonah going down, 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 down. Like many times in our running, we think we're ascending. Like we think it's amazing. Like this is the best thing ever. But Jonah is going down, 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 down. And we, we don't just see it in, in the narrative flow. Like we see it in his prayer, right? Like if you read this prayer and you're familiar with the Bible, it feels like a psalm. And the reason it does is because it kind of is. Like it's, it mimics psalms like Psalm 18 and Psalm 130 and, and Psalm 30. Look at some of the language Jonah used. I called out, out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. I'm driven from your sight. Look at five, the waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. He went so down so low, he says, to the roots of the mountains where bars, felt like bars had closed over him forever. He's, he's at the pit. Jonah is in this place of the depths and in this place of desperation. Here's the amazing thing, though. We're not just like hammering on the fact that, that Jonah was in the depths. The amazing thing about the depths is it's the place where we're most likely to meet the grace of God. So what I love about the depths is the depths is the place where you and I are most likely to encounter and come like front, face, and center with the amazing grace of God if we'll let it. That's what happens in the depths. What, what else is interesting is, man, for, um, for these sailors, like sea life, it was their life. You can tell this is a big storm because they're freaking out in it. But for Israelites, 
like they weren't a seafaring people. Like they were a wander around the desert people, right? Like think of Abraham and the Negev and think of um, the Israelites that did wander for 40 years. And so most people would say for a Hebrew or Israelite, like the sea was a place that they had great fear and, and it represented great chaos. Think about with your Bible with me for a second. Genesis 1, the sea is this watery chaos. Uh, Genesis 5 and 6, the floods come. Sea is this picture of judgment. Think of Exodus 14, the sea uh, closes on Pharaoh and the Israelites. It's this picture of judgment. The sea for an Israelite was a picture of chaos and judgment and, and, and brought great fear to them. And so you see the depths that Jonah is willing to run from God to just to get to a place like that. But it also gives us this picture of how low that Jonah has sunk in his life. And for me, maybe I'm smiling a little bit because to me, it's just greatly encouraging. It's encouraging because this is the story of the Bible, is it not? Like it's the story of, of thankful for your testimony, James, and it's the story of many of us this past couple weeks, or not just this past couple weeks, some of us are really in tune with the storm that's been out there, but many of us are very removed from it. There's been other things that represent storm a lot more to us than this most recent one, but isn't it true like it's the place where at times you can mark it and say, I saw the goodness and grace of God there. It's true biblically. It's not just Jonah, it's Hannah in the midst of her barrenness and infertility. She cries out to God from the depths and she's gonna meet the grace of God there. It's Joseph, 20 plus years, uh, prisons, being betrayed, and he's gonna cry out and he's gonna meet the grace of God there. It's the apostle Paul in great weakness. It's where he's gonna meet the grace of God. So just be encouraged today. Like if you feel in the depths at any point, which I feel like many of us would just say that that's, that's true of life. It's just, it's just the ebb and flow of life. Like it's the place where you're most likely to meet the grace of God. But here's the sobering thing about it. Like, like we know that we've heard before, like people can be in a broken situation or brokenness internally. And people say you either become better or you become bitter. And so we know that like the depths alone aren't this guarantee that you're gonna meet God's grace. We've got to keep reading and, um, it's where we move from not just the depths to deliverance. And the thing about Jonah is it's not the depths alone. It's not just the bottom of the barrel alone that helps him meet God's grace. It's, it's how he responds. Look at verse two. It took him a while. The pagan sailors beat him, but he got there, right? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I love that. So that this, this whole prayer that Jonah prays, it has the rhythm of a thanksgiving psalm in the Psalms. And those Psalms have a, a, like a really distinct rhythm. It's, it's, I called, you answered, and you came to my rescue. I call, you answered, God, and you came to my rescue. And we see that here, that Jonah is praying, and I love it. He's in the depths, he's in the bottom, he's in the brokenness, he's in the worst of times and weeping times and waiting times moment. He's run from God and he's gotten himself into this mess. But Jonah begins to call out to the Lord in the middle of the depths. And he calls out for deliverance to God. It's amazing, it's the same thing that's happened biblically for people all throughout the scriptures. Those same narratives we mentioned, all of those people from Hannah to Joseph to Paul, we could go on and on and on. They're in the depths and that's one thing, but they don't just begin to find the grace of God in the depths. They begin to see it in the midst of God's deliverance in the depths. And I mean, I just, I love that. 
I think for most of us, if we're honest, like the idea of God's grace is something most of us have heard about or we sing about it, we've read about it. But J.I. Packer has this great word. He says, most Christians, like they can sing about the grace of God and they can read about the grace of God and they can talk about the grace of God. But for many of us, if we're honest, we haven't experienced the grace of God. Like like we haven't experienced in such a way that just turns you upside down uh, and rearranges your life, reroutes your life, intercepts your life and sends it on a different trajectory. And Packer says this, he says, there's three things that the grace of God presupposes that have to be true for you to really experience it, for you to really see it in living color, for you to see it on the big screen, for you to like really be stopped in your tracks and see it. So mention two of them here. He says, the first is you have to see your real state apart from God. Like you have to see your brokenness and your great need. You have to see that, that you're a guilty sinner apart from the grace of a holy God. You've got to see your real state. And that's not popular culturally. Like there's all over things. Like we talk about, no, you just need external modification. You don't need internal transformation. No, you just need like some therapy out here. But, but Packer's saying, if you're going to really see the grace of God, you've got to know your true state before God. But not only that, you've got to know that, that you can't get yourself out of it. And this also isn't popular. I remember talking to a good friend of mine who um, works at a really good um, Chinese restaurant in Richardson, Jiangxi. You should go there. It's amazing. And, um, and so we're talking about this. And he, um, I'm not getting kicked back for that, by the way, but I just thought I'd throw it in there. But he, so, so my friend, like we're talking about the grace of God. And he, um, he just said like, the, I get that I'm broken and I need help, but like, I've got to make that right. I, I've, like, how can someone else make right what I've made wrong? I've got to make it right. And that's so much in the, just the air we breathe in our culture too. But Packer says, both of those things have to be true for you to really see the grace of God. You've got to know your state. And you've got to know there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself. Again, our testimony this morning, you've got to know in a different way, just the outward storm. You've got to know that you're in a desperate need and you can't get yourself out of the pit that you're in. You can't do it. And so Jonah begins to cry. This is, I think this is such a big deal. I was looking at this study the other day that people had done uh, culturally on like the, the youngest generation coming up right now. And this is just true of all of us, not just youngest generation. And that generation's amazing. But one of the things that they saw was that, um, man, when, when they talked about who God is, uh, the grace of God was just, was just like absent. Like it wasn't there a lot. In fact, um, I know Will and Grace is about that show's about to like finish up and like hit like an anniversary show and, and, and kind of call it quits. But they said that the, the, the surveyors actually mentioned the show Will and Grace more than they just mentioned the grace of God as they asked questions about God. And, and there's this like huge gap between like where is our awareness and experience of the grace of God, the God who, who brings us from the depths. And so here's what we see. We see that Jonah calls, but that's not all we see. We see that God answers and that's huge. You need to hear that tonight. I need to hear that tonight. We need to hear that tonight, that, that he not only is in the depths and he's not only calling and praying, but God answers him. And I don't want us to get over the amazement of that, that we have a God in heaven, a holy God, that when he sees people running far from him and you, we think, man, he's probably gonna kill them. Like they're gone, you know, like, or, or it's over for them. Like he chases them down and answers, it, answers them when they call out. Here's what H.B. Charles says about this. I love it. He says, whose prayer did God answer? Whose prayer did God answer? Disobedient Jonah, rebellious Jonah, wrong way Jonah, hard-hearted Jonah, throw me overboard first Jonah. Jonah is the least likely candidate for an answered prayer. Least likely. And I just gotta wonder, like, what, what about you? 
Like, as you're hearing the living and active word of God tonight, what about you? Like, what is it in your life that makes you feel like that you're not a candidate for the grace of God? Yeah, I can't call out to him. Like, we've tried that before. I can't call out to him. Like, do you know how far I've run? Do you know the depths that I've sunk to? And it's this reminder that we have a God that no matter how far you've sunk, no matter how far you've run, like when you cry out to him, he hears your prayers. It's his character. He's the God who hears throughout scripture. But he doesn't just hear. He doesn't just hear, he comes to Jonah's rescue. So how does this amazing grace and rescue come? And this is just, um, this is just incredible. Look with me at verse four. Jonah says this, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Like, God, you can't even see me anymore. Like, I'm forsaken, I'm forgotten. But look at the, look what he uses. Look at his phrase there. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And look with me at, um, verse six, and I, he's at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fading away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you. Look, look at it again into your holy temple. So what's going on there? Like, how is Jonah finding this rescue? Like, what is he pointing to? Um, man, for, for the Hebrew, for the Israelite, that the Jerusalem was the holy city. And in the holy city was the temple and the temple represented the place where they would meet a holy God. And there was a room inside of that temple, the Holy of Holies, that, that there was a box in that room. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. But on that box, there was, a, there was a lid. And inside the box was the Ten Commandments. And there was this picture of like, there's a law. There are these commandments that you have to meet up to if you're going to come into the presence of a holy God. And they could only send, uh, they would send a priest in there uh, once a year on this day of atonement to make a sacrifice for the people that couldn't, um, that couldn't like scale up to that law. And when I say the people that couldn't scale up, that was all the people. It was for everyone because everyone broke the law. And so they would, uh, the priest would go in there and um, with a, a rope on his leg in case something went bad, he had to get pulled out and they would sacrifice the animal and they would sprinkle the blood of this animal on top of the lid of the box in the Holy of Holies inside inside the temple. And this, it was this picture of like when God looked down, like he didn't see that they had broken the commandments. He just saw the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed, the costly sacrifice that was sacrificed in the place of the one that had run from God, that had transgressed upon God. And it was this, and this amazing, beautiful picture. And, and obviously, if those of us who are Christians in the room, like we're already going to Jesus here and, and Jonah's not there yet. We just know Jonah's like sinking. And in some way, like he's saying in my prayer, I just looked to your temple. I kept looking to your holy temple, knowing that there was some, something else, someone else taking my stead and taking my place where I wasn't able to take the place myself. Jesus will say this about himself. He'll say that he is a greater Jonah that he's the greater Jonah, that he's going to do and, and, and take the place of these, these sacrifices and these things that, that pointed to what Jonah was looking to that he hadn't fully seen in reality. Listen to this in Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling for defiled persons with ashes of a cow sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Listen to Hebrews 10, 11 through 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the hand of God. This is gonna be on the screen. Look at this one in Romans 3. This is beautiful. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from those commandments. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I'm just gonna stop there for now, but that, um, that's amazing. Here's what's crazy that's just been like dropping my jaw all week. And, and many of you might know this, but I didn't. But this is crazy that that, that, that word mercy seat is the same word that is used here in verse 25. It's incredible. That picture of the lid that was covered in blood, that covered the box, that had the law that we broke, that was inside the Holy of Holies, that was inside the temple that represented the presence of God. So this verse could be translated like this. Uh, These people, they'll be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. That's amazing. That's what Jonah's looking to. That's what we get to look to for rescue. And I'll tell you, if you look to that in the middle of the depths, if you look to to this Jesus in the middle of the depths who does what you're unable to do in your place and then dies and rises in your stead and gives you life that you can't gain on your own, it changes everything in the depths because all of a sudden grace doesn't become something we don't just sing about. It's not just something we sing about. It's not just something we write about or read about. It becomes experiential and it turns us upside down. Look at Jonah. This is crazy. Look how he talks about God in chapter one. Look what he says. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of information and a lot of detail, but look how it turns in chapter two, verse six. He says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Isn't that awesome? It's like something has changed for Jonah. Now, I got permission to tell this story because you don't want to be, you know, talking about your parents and their health. But my mom is amazing. She lives in Atlanta. She uh, came here to visit um, this weekend and, and she had um, somewhat of like a, a mini small stroke on Thursday. And so we um, brought her to the hospital emergency room and um, man, she's doing fine. She's here today. That's awesome. But she... Um, She's doing just good. But in that moment, like, we're not sure. We don't know what's happening. And I'll never forget, she's starting to like, the symptoms are starting to reverse a little bit. And the lady comes up to her and starts asking her questions. And they ask her, what's your religious preference? And, um, and she says, Christian. And then my mom just starts quoting scripture for like two minutes. It was awesome. Like, I wish she'd been there. Um, and she kept, just kept going. Like, seriously, they're like, what's your religious preference? And she's like, I love the Lord my God with all my strength, all my heart, all my soul. Come magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name together. This poor man cried, the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his troubles. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, this lady's like, huh? You know, I'm like, come on, Presby, you're about to get the gospel today. And like, it is just like, all these things start opening up. But here's why I tell you that. My mom didn't quote one verse to prove Christianity. Like, I, I think for most of us, if we're honest, sometimes Christianity has become something that's a box we check. It's a religious preference that we check. 
but something in the midst of the depths for my mom after walking through divorces and walking through cancer and walking through mental illness in our family and trusting Jesus and be, believing that Jesus would deliver, it's become not informational, it's become experiential. And what she was doing when they asked to check a box for religious preference, she was just delighting in her personal savior that she loved, oh Lord, my God, the one who saved her life from the pit. And she just didn't stop, it was amazing. But I feel that burden for us that, that, that we would see this turn in Jonah, that, that God wouldn't just be someone that we can describe details about him, but he would be a deliverer that we delight in because he's pulled our life from the pit. That God wouldn't just be someone that's theoretical for us, but he's become personal for us. He goes from, oh, the God that made the sea and the heavens, and then we're doing whatever we want with our life to all of a sudden, God, you brought my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, that something turns and changes in us. And I'm telling you, the depths, they have the ability to do that. Don't despise the depths. Don't look down on the places of darkness. Don't even despise your running from God. My, my pastor growing up said, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God and he will chase you down. And then don't, don't despise what he might do when you call out to him. And when he answers and begins to rescue, he can change everything. He's a deliverer and he's a rescuer. It's not just true for my mom. I love this. Um, man, I, I happen to like the, the, the band U2 and I know they, they just don't seem like super popular anymore, but that's okay. I'm just way out of touch with stuff. But I, but Bono's got this famous quote where he talks about the difference in karma and grace. I love quoting this. So sorry if you've heard me do it a lot, but he's, he's with this interviewer and they start asking him like, what's the difference? Like, how have you, like a religion does a lot of bad things in the name of God. What has turned for you? And he says this, he says, it's a mind blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. She says, well, that doesn't make it clearer for me. <laughs> he says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know that, you, that what you put out comes back to you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and physics, physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the part of the universe for some. I'm actually sure of it. And yet along comes the idea called grace to upend all of it, to upend the as you reap you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and grace defies logic. Love interrupts. If you like the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff, to which she says, I'd be interested to hear that. <laughs> and he says, that's between me and God. Um, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was gonna finally be my judge. I'd be, it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins into the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And then we just see the development for Jonah in these last couple of verses. Verse eight, not just the depths where grace meets us, not just the deliverance where we can see grace in living color, but then the development where we're called to continue in grace. Jonah's a work in process, just like all of us. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Some translate that faithful love, loyal love, or even grace. In other words, it's almost like they forsake the grace that could have been theirs. Verse nine, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord. This amazing summary of the whole of scriptures. God's the one who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. But I think if we're honest and, and we're familiar with the story, 
I'm not going to take too much away from the next couple of weeks, but we know that we know that Jonah, this repentance, it, it, it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be all there for Jonah. It seems to be to be missing some links potentially because Jonah's gonna. People have said he's the he's the younger brother in the prodigal story in Luke 15 in the first two chapters. He runs from the father, but then he becomes the older son in the next two chapters. He just does does things without a without a real heart for God. That there's something missing. He's he's still in process. He's not he's not where. Um, we would think he would be. Um, and I think that's many of us, if we're honest. Like, I just love the encouragement that he, he's delivered and he's rescued and he runs from God and God answers and turns, but, but he's not, not, not everything's changed, not everything is there. And, and I think one of my, I know Tim Keller's a popular pastor. I think one of my favorite things I've ever heard him say is this. He says, people don't know they're sinful by being told that they're sinful. And people don't come to know the grace and love of God by being told, like, God loves you, God's gracious to you. They come to know it through experience. They come to know it experientially. And I think if a lot of us were honest, we'd say, that's, that's my story. It's true. Like, I came to know my sinfulness and brokenness, not because someone said, hey, you're really sinful, but because I began to experience my sinfulness. And I came to know God's great grace and love, not because someone said, God loves you, though we need to say these things, but mainly because I began to experience it. If I can just be honest with you, I feel like it's good to do this pastorally. Shay does this all the time, but man, I feel like that's been my life this last year. Like there, there were some things in my life that some people that love me were like trying to point out in my life. Uh, like this is true of you, this is true of you. And for some reason, I just couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it. And then God in his kindness began to bring me to the depths in some ways. Some of it was through difficult situations my family was walking through. Some of it was through um, just putting me up close and center with my, with my pride and my self-righteousness and my brokenness where I couldn't see it when someone said it to me, but God said, I'm gonna love you enough to let you experience it and put you through the ringer. So you see your deep inadequacy and great need before me and you begin to, Jonathan, not just talk about it, but see my great grace for you in the midst of your great need. And God's kind to do that. And if we can be honest, these last couple of weeks too, I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. But for many of us, like, we haven't just felt the storm out here, but we felt the storm in here, like the stir up in here, like the, our great need to experience the grace and love of God here too. And that's a good thing. It's God's kindness to let us see that. It's God's kindness to let us experience that. Man, many of you have heard um, the story of John Newton. John Newton um, grew up in 1700s. He was born in Britain, and he was a slave trader in the 1740s, 1750s, and, and so on. People have said that he was um, a mess of a human being and a monster, like that he had great addiction. There's stories of him um, getting drunk, falling overboard, almost dying, and then pulling him out, just story after story you can go read about. I don't have time to tell you tonight. He was a mess of a human being and a monster of a person. He, he's separating families. He's separating parents and children in the midst of the slave trade to get his cash and his money. He's far from God. And it's crazy. In God's providence, he tells his story that in the middle of a storm, he begins to, for the first time, call out. That a storm's going on in the midst of a ship. He's working the pump. And as he's working the pump, he cries out three words according to this narrative that I read this past week. He cries out, God, help me. That's it. God, help me. 
And he goes to a gathering a couple weeks later because he's kicked off the ship because he didn't die, but he got so sick in that storm that he's kicked off the ship and he goes to a gathering where the first time he begins to hear about the grace of God for sinners, even like him, that have run far from him. That the grace of God that is so wide and extends so deep that could save even a John Newton among them. And he hears it and he believes it and he is radically changed. He becomes a pastor. It's not all of our stories. We don't need, not all of you need to do that. That'd be a really bad idea. But he, he becomes a pastor um, he helps abolish the slave trade. I was reading this week, it was 30 days after he passed away that the slave trade was abolished in England. And then he writes a really famous song that most of us are familiar with, Amazing Grace. It's amazing to think what God does through people like Newton and through people like us. It just says this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and it was grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.